There's a word that I think gets at where we all were about six weeks ago. It's from a French word and it's the word frisson. And what it means is a rush or a thrill of excitement that comes either from delight or danger. Kids, you experienced frisson about six weeks ago when the governor said, you're not going back to class for a while. That was a thrill for you. And then your parents experienced the same, but in a slightly different way when you had extra time such that they found you surfing on the roof. And then they had a frisson of danger that they were seeing you participate in. And everybody had some kind of thrill, this sense of solidarity, and we're all gonna do this together. And that was about six weeks ago. But that's kind of changed. I think the frisson is gone. The, the thrill has moved on. And now the frisson feels more like a fog. We're all in kind of a fog right now. We don't know which way is up. We don't know which voices to trust. We don't know what's the best thing to do at, and, and the timely way to do it. It's like being in a fog. And that's not only disorienting, it's unsettling. It's what we're all in right now. It's a fog and we don't know what to do. Uh, a few weeks ago, Ross Douthat wrote an editorial called uh, In the Fog of Coronavirus, There Are No Experts. And he likened what we're all facing right now uh, as if society was one big patient that had been afflicted with something for the very first time that was unknown to them. And he described our social condition in this way when he said, before falling ill, this person imagined the world of science as a stable room, well-built, well-lit, with a sturdy floor beneath. But now the floor is given way. The patient has fallen through, and in the basement there is darkness, strange shapes, things you can possibly identify by feel, but not by sight. There's still some light coming through from above, from the world of certainty and expertise, but those shafts of light don't fill the whole basement. And what they do light up can be partial and misleading. So if you're going to find your way out and up to health and safety, you have to be prepared to grope, to stumble, to make your own light, and sometimes to move by feel or instinct through the dark. Can I get a witness? Does that register with your experience? Does that connect with what you've been feeling of late? I think it registers. I know I'm in a fog and I'm betting I'm not the only one. We're all wondering what is the way out of it, and it's not for a lack of expert voices listening to them to still leave us in that place of disorientation. We all need the fog to lift. We all need our sight to be improved. This morning, we're gonna look at a passage on the day of Jesus' resurrection that finds two people in sort of an inner fog a fog of their inner being. They are in a fog of confusion and of sorrow and of bewilderment and they don't know if that fog will lift. And Jesus, when he encounters them, keeps them in the dark at first. He doesn't reveal himself just like Drew Brees didn't reveal himself until later. And for whatever reason he does, he doesn't disclose himself until later. 
they're all in need of a certain illumination and Jesus prefers to keep them in the dark for a while because there's something he wants them to understand about him before they see him in his fullness and it's a curious moment it's a bewildering moment but I think there's something for us in that moment because there is something that he wants us to see there's something that we must see in order to take him on his terms we in a sense need a fog to lift that only he can lift we need an ability to see that only he can grant and we want to figure out what that is so again I wonder if you might stretch your legs stand your feet and hear the moment when two took a journey and didn't know it was Jesus who was with them our central text for today is found in Luke chapter 24 verses 13 through 27. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels, who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. The word of the Lord. This wonderful story that is both baffling and mysterious is, let's just call it what it is, it's bizarre when my wife read it to my children they all agreed it was sort of like a ghost story he's vanishing right vanishing it's bizarre 
Is it at all believable? Naturally, there may be somebody who's watching this, who's listening for the first time and thinking, hmm, it sounds like a great fairy tale, but why are we preaching to it as if it were true? Just for a minute, let's consider its plausibility, okay? For one, notice this. If you were with us two Sundays ago, it's Mary Magdalene who doesn't recognize Jesus any more than these two folks do. She thinks he's the gardener. So at least there's some consistency of the experience between people who first encounter him. Secondly, note this. Their first response in hearing that maybe Jesus has risen from the dead was not, praise be! It was more like, yeah, if only. They're as incredulous as the people in Matthew 28 that says, yeah, we saw him, but some of them doubted. They're as incredulous as Thomas himself who says, I, you know, unless I touch him in his wounds and see his hands, I will never believe. These two are just as incredulous as anyone. And so the idea that resurrection was just sort of a natural deduction on their part, well, it wasn't. That makes it a little bit more believable. Thirdly, just consider the fact that, uh, you know, when it comes to running into Jesus, uh, the way Luke tells the story uh, makes you think for just a minute, what kind, of, what kind of literature is this? And I want you to just notice one word in the whole text, and it's the word Cleopas. One of these people, some people think it might have been two friends, some people think it might have been a father and son, others think it might have been a husband and wife, but, but Luke names one of them, Cleopas, the other one he doesn't name, and then he never tells us anything else about Cleopas, as if Cleopas might have been an eyewitness at that point who's reporting to him, or other people who were listening to Luke for the first time might have known who Cleopas was. He never tells us who Cleopas is, and he never tells us who the other person is. That seems kind of funny. If you're writing a fable or a legend, you usually don't just name drop. You usually do a little bit of an explanation. But, but the fourth reason why I might invite you to suspend your disbelief if you have a little bit of a hard time swallowing the story is that you may have a problem with the very idea of Jesus vanishing. In the same way that you might have had a hard time on earlier accounts hearing about him walking into a room without even going through the door, not even having to have the door open. But, but consider just this perspective. There's a New Testament scholar. Her name is Paula Friedrichsen. She has immersed herself in New Testament studies for decades. She knows it backwards and forwards, both the text itself and the history behind it. She is not a believer in Jesus. She does not hold to the resurrection. But in a quote that I read from hers recently, she did say this about those who had the experience of resurrection. She said this, I know in their own terms what they saw was the raised Jesus. That's what they say. And then all the historic evidence we have afterwards attests to their conviction that that's what they saw. I'm not saying that they really did see the raised Jesus. I wasn't there. I don't know what they saw. But I do know that as a historian that they must have seen something. She's not granting that the resurrection happened. But she's not doubting that people who claim to have seen it actually saw something. But even on the basis of historical evidence, the best explanation for the very existence of the church and its endurance through much suffering and persecution is that those who were first to believe were those who really believed saw him raised. So if it's possible and plausible to think that they really did see somebody who was walking who once was not breathing, then why is it so impossible to think that he might have vanished before these two at an appointed time? That's the plausibility of the passage. 
And that's part of what Luke's getting at. He's out to give us a detailed account that we might believe. But what's the point of the passage? It may be plausible, but what's its point? For most of the passage, these two, whoever they were, one of whom is named Cleopas, is in the dark. They're experiencing something of a certain blindness. They can't recognize who Jesus is at all until the very last minute. And Jesus prefers it that way. He does not want to let the cat out of the bag. He does not want to let the body out of the tomb, if you will. They're kept from recognizing him, it says there early in the moment. What a curious turn of events. Not only why can they not recognize him, but why does Jesus prefer to leave them in the dark, if you will? And so Jesus comes up to them. Why are you two so serious about what you're talking about? What's going on? What, what's happened that you are so animated in your discussion? And they look at Jesus like a bunch of friends of Jared Leto looked at him last month. He goes on a 10 or 12 day uh, self-imposed self-isolation for the sake of his health before it all falls apart. And then he comes back home and asks his friends, what, wait a minute, what's coronavirus? What's that? And they say, what rock have you been under? Well, that's precisely what these two who are there in Jerusalem are looking at Jesus. What self-imposed isolation have you been under for the last several days? And then they proceed to bring him up to speed. They explain to Jesus about Jesus. They, they tell him about his origin. They, they speak of his character. But then they also talk about the tragedy that befell him. And then... After they're done with that part, then they explain that, my goodness, we've heard reports that some of the women from our company, they came to the tomb where to find him, and they found him not there, and they found angels speaking to them, and then two more of the disciples go and corroborate the story, and then and there, these two, they're crestfallen. They don't believe it. They're hearing all this. And suddenly, Jesus says rather abruptly, oh, you foolish and slow to believe. Which when we hear that coming out of Jesus' lips, we might think, gosh, harsh much, Jesus? But in truth, that word for foolish there in the Greek is more like him calling out their naivete and his exasperation, much like a, a teacher might be exasperated that their students are not getting it. And it's as much as if Jesus is saying, oh, bless your ever-loving heart. Are you never going to get it? And the question is, what is it that Jesus wants them to get? And why doesn't he at that point kind of pull the mask off and say, it's me? In that moment, Jesus wants them to understand two things. He wants them to get two things in order to really get him. That if, unless they get these two things, they don't really take him on his terms. And neither will we unless we grasp what he's out to reveal to us in our fog the fog of our inner being. And the first thing that has to get across has something to do with his place in a certain story that these two knew. He says there in verse 25, O oh, you foolish and slow to believe, were you not, did you not believe what the prophets had spoken? And then two verses later in verse 27, you find Jesus it's, it's said of Jesus, and then beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus interpreted for them everything from the scriptures concerning him. Jesus is out to share with him one thing, that he is at the center of a story that these two are very familiar with. 
They've been listening to words of prophets over centuries, and they've come to have a great expectation of something that might change. You hear them say, we had hoped, we had hoped that he'd come to redeem Israel, meaning we'd hoped he'd be the political revolutionary that would come to free us from the Roman occupation that Israel had been under the thumb of for the last 100 years. We had hoped that would be true, and they're sad after the crucifixion that they had witnessed, that apparently was off the table and for the foreseeable future. Jesus was out to say unto them that this Jesus was at the center of a story, of a national story, a story of a national longing. Because in Israel's story, there were several threads that came to explain who he was, that they couldn't see until they could see all of those threads together into one cord. And that Old Testament reading that you heard today that the Grady's so admirably put together is just a brief summary of the expectation that was in the air in those days that there might be one who would come, come to rescue, come to redeem. They thought that he would be one like a prophet who would guide like Moses. They thought he would be a king like David who would lead. They thought he would be a priest who would come and represent them unto God. They thought he would be one like a son of man, like the prophet Ezekiel said, one to sort of be a representative for humanity. And indeed, Jesus is out to say, the one you've been looking for, that's me. He's the one to explain it. Even before he reveals himself as himself, he says, the one that you've been waiting on, that's the one you're now lamenting. And you and I might hear that sort of broad and brief sweep of biblical history, and we might hear about the way in which Jesus represents the, the convergence of a lot of prophetic expectation, and we might go, well, that's nice. That's... Well, isn't that rich? Isn't that biblical? So what? What's the punchline? An Israelite of that day might have been thrilled, might have had their frisson to hear that Jesus was the one they were waiting for, that he was at the center of Israel's national story, the center of Israel's national longing. But why? Why would it make any impact to you and I? Why should we care? For Jesus to say, that he is the focal point of Israel's national history and national longing is to say also that Jesus is the focal point of the very story and longing of humanity. That the things that are our deepest longings, that which we have the greatest concern for, that which represents our most profound fears, Jesus is the center of that. He has come to speak into our condition in a way like nothing else can. He is the one who's come to answer the questions that are burning with us. The ones that will not let us go. The ones that we seek any number of creative ways to satisfy ourselves with, but which none of which fits the bill. He's come to say that he's at the center of a story of humanity that nothing else is. In 1944, C.S. Lewis gave an address to the Oxford Socratic Club, an address that he titled, is theology poetry and by his very title he was taking a shot across the bow of what many in his day and probably most in our day think when it comes to speaking of theology that it's nothing more than the potency of poetry for all of the potency that poetry brings to express truth that it speaks of it in a in a charming and a picturesque way but it's not true truth not like 
scientific truth. And in the address, Lewis is not out to suggest that the way science speaks and the way theology speaks, that they're speaking in identical ways, but he is out to reject the notion that only a scientific truth yields you something worth that is found credible and worth and considered vital to your own experience. And so he puts it this way by way of preface. He says, uh, the picture so often painted of Christians huddling together on an ever narrower strip of beach while the incoming tide of science mounts higher and higher corresponds to nothing in my experience. In other words, uh, the conventional notion that with every gain in scientific knowledge that represents a net loss in the reason that we turn to belief and theological truth to ground us, to give us insight, and to provide us hope. He doesn't find that experience credible. In fact, he would say, the extent to which you rely on scientific truth alone, in time, you will begin to discover the limits of what scientific truth can provide. And so he puts it rather bluntly late in the essay, or the, the address, when he says this, If I swallow the scientific cosmology as a whole, not only can I not fit in Christianity, but I cannot even fit in science. If minds are wholly dependent on brains, and brains on biochemistry, and biochemistry on the meaningless flux of the atoms, I cannot understand how the thought of those minds should have any more significance than the sound of the wind in the trees. And this is to me the final test. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. C.S. Lewis is arguing that if you take only science to be your explanation for all things, there comes a point at which it can't offer you all that you need it to. And in some ways, to ask of it what it cannot provide is like using a metal detector to brush your teeth. It wasn't designed to do that. If you were with us Wednesday night, then you remember us talking about how minds in and of themselves, they don't explain why, where thoughts come from. You can put a brain in a scanner and discover what happens when we think, but you can't look at that brain and say that's where the thoughts are or where thoughts originate. And when it comes to morals, much as we might like to think that morals just sort of developed by certain traditions that we came up with and, and how science comes up with theories about how particular virtues or vices either served or did a disservice to our well-being, science can't tell you why we should act in any particular way. C.S. Lewis is saying that the story that we all live in, the one we cannot extricate ourselves from, science can't provide you the answer to that story like Christianity can. It offers us answers to our questions about beliefs and about things that are vital. In the same way that Jesus was out to show to these two travelers that he was at the center of Israel's story, both Jesus and C.S. Lewis are about to say in tandem, in concert with one another, that Jesus is the answer to the very human story that we all can't get away from. We are all travelers in a fog, now and always. It's always our condition, even when the world is not in upheaval. And what Jesus is out to say by locating him at the center of both Israel's story and the human story is that he is not a tribal deity that only has tribal concerns. 
and that Jesus is not merely concerned with yours and my quote-unquote spiritual life, but has no concern for any other part of our life. If he's at the center of our story and our longing, then he has an interest in every single part of our life, both in peace and in upheaval, both in plenty and in want. That's where he is properly located. That's why with all of our angers in these days, all of our apprehensions in these days, all of our anxieties in these days, he applies. And we make every thought captive to him as a consequence of him being at the center of the story of humanity. But there's one other thing he means to tell them. One other thing that they must hear if they're going to take Jesus on his terms. One other thing that you and I must hear. The first thing we have to know is how is he at the center of the story. But the other thing we have to know and what they had to know is about their greatest need. And you hear Jesus speak of that greatest need there in verse 26 when he says, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer and enter into his glory? Was it not necessary that he go there and experience what he did? See, in that day, the Israelite story, they had all of those threads of Moses as a prophet and David as a king and, and Ezekiel as a picture of a son of man. But there was one other thread that they weren't quite bargaining for. And that was the thread of the suffering servant, like Isaiah speaks of it. That suffering servant aspect of the one that they were to expect was essential to understanding who this one who would come to redeem them would be. See, as we said earlier, these two, the disciples themselves, everyone in that day, even those who were championing Jesus and heralding his arrival in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, they all had a version of Jesus as one who was almost exclusively a political revolutionary, one who would come to kick Rome out of that land and restore Israel to its former glory without being occupied. Now, Jesus certainly speaks to politics. Jesus surely has something to say to, for the use of rule and of power, how it should be used and for what purposes. But that's the cart before the horse when you're talking about kicking out political oppressiveness. Jesus has come to say that you and I have a deeper need that you and I have a deeper oppression within us that first must be redeemed, that we first must be freed from before any other talk of delivering from us or delivering us from political oppression. And that one freedom we all needed from him was a freedom from the entanglement of sin. It is sin that entangles us. It is sin that is both corrupt and corrupting. And it is sin that keeps us estranged from the one who made us, in whose image we were made, and whose image we were meant to be conformed unto. These two thought that Jesus had come to rescue them from a political power. Jesus is saying, first of all, he's come to rescue us from a spiritual power. A spiritual power that holds us in all manner of material ways, and that it was necessary to do that. Necessary because what he did was something that we could not do. It was necessary in that sense. What was broken between God and us is not something that could be fixed by us. And unless we take him on that term, we do not take him at all. Brene Brown, I've spoken to you of her before. She says in a very different context, in order for forgiveness to happen, something has to die. And even the smallest relationship between two people 
where there is love, where there is trust, where there is kindred spirit, if either one or both violate that which is between them, then something has to die for them to rediscover what they once had. The urge to take revenge, the urge to seethe with anger, the urge to withhold love from one another, that urge has to die. It has to be killed in order for that refuge to be found again in the relationship that they once had. Jesus is out to say, for there to be a restored communion between humanity and God, there had to be a death. And Jesus was that death. And by him, by that death, that corruption is healed. And that's what we call the gospel. And that's the second thing that we all have to grapple with if we're going to take Jesus on his terms. And he says all of that while they still have no idea that it's really Drew Brees behind the beard. So they make it to their destination. It's getting late at night. Jesus kind of gives the impression that he's going to keep going on. And they say, wait, 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 wait. Stay with us, man. It's dark. We've been walking a long time. Sit. Eat with us. So he does. They sit at table the most intimate kind of fellowship that one might have in that day. It wasn't just a dinner invitation. It was an invitation into one another's souls if you ask them to dinner with you. And in that moment, he takes the bread, he blesses the bread, he breaks the bread. And then their jaws hit the table. Because finally they see him. Finally they recognize him. And he vanishes. And they look at one another. And they say, did not our hearts burn with us while we were with him on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures, and they are so amazed and astonished about what has overcome them in recognizing who he was, that they forget about what time it is, and they head straight back to Jerusalem, and they find the disciples, and they say, we saw him, we saw him! And they say, we know, we know, we saw him too! And in that moment, they realized that something profound had happened to them. They were once blind and now their hearts were burning. And that's a wonderful metaphor in and of itself. And we could sit with it for a long time and imagine what it meant. But what does it mean? What does it mean that their hearts burned when they were with him? What does it mean that they came to know him in the breaking of the bread? John Hull is a name I've mentioned to you before. He was born with a congenital eye defect. They attempted to do cataract surgery when he was a young child. It failed. His eyesight progressively deteriorated over time. He gets married. He has children. But by the age of 40, it all goes dark for him. He can no longer see. But after he became blind, he began to keep an audio journal of his experience of being blind. What it was like to be blind. and, and there are few expressions or explanations of the experience of blindness that anybody speaks of with greater admiration. A few years ago, the New York Times took his audio journals and created a dramatization of his life using excerpts from those audio journals to capture what he said. And I want to show you a brief scene from that dramatization where John Hull explains just a little bit about something that lessened the experience of his blindness, if only for just a moment. Rain brings out the contours of what's around you, in that it introduces a continuous blanket of differentiated and specialized sound, uninterrupted, 
which fills the whole of the audible environment. If only there could be something equivalent to rain falling inside. I should also say that this is an experience of beauty. Instead of being isolated, cut off, preoccupied internally, you are presented with a world. You are related to a world. You are addressed by a world. Why should this experience strike one as being beautiful? Cognition is beautiful. It's beautiful to know. There, listening to the rain, a man for whom the whole world was inaccessible to him suddenly became available to him. He could grasp it. He could note its distance. He could sense its shape. The water that's falling on the puddles in the street and upon the leaves in the trees and upon the roof above his home. Suddenly, he was able to grasp part of the world that was only darkness to him. And he longed for that continue and he longed for it to even almost rain inside of his own home that he might be able to pick up, as he puts it, the shape and contour of everything that was around him that he dealt with on a daily basis, but which was suddenly or which was always at, at a remove from him, always inaccessible to him. The rain brought to him an awareness of what was true and what was beautiful to him. And if you will allow me to mix the metaphors between the New Testament passage and John Hull's experience, I think the burning in the heart that those two experienced in being with Jesus is what John Hull experienced with the rain outside his window. That Jesus, if you will, walks into our house and we who are otherwise blind to something that we most desperately need to see but which cannot, Jesus has come through his own life, through his own love, through his own suffering and death and resurrection, allows us to make, find accessible the shape and contour of two things, our greatest need and his even greater love. Through what he does, we who are in a fog, in a really profound way, we who try to find any number of ways to lift the fog in ways that will never satisfy us and that will never bring us to the heart of true reality, it is Jesus, through his life, his words, his love, his death, we begin to take note and have the shape and the contour of that deepest hole and of his singular way of filling it. And when we grasp that, we grasp Him. Because finally it's on His terms. And what does it look like? What will it look like to grasp that deepest need and that deepest love? His name is Vandekar. And he's a respiratory therapist. And he works in New York City. And he gets up early every day. And last week he shared a brief explanation of what his routine was as a respiratory therapist in a hospital that's been overrun by patients. And he opens up that recollection by saying this, I've been waking up earlier, about 4.45 in the morning. I don't sleep very well. I have one cup of coffee. In the shower, I say a morning prayer. I ask God to be relieved of the bondage of self so that I may better serve others. What gets me to these days is the kindness of other people. 
I get hugs from transporters and nurses. We say, I love you a lot more now. My director and I will have a conversation and I always end it with, I love you. There are a number perhaps of silver linings to the season that we're in and one of which might be that the scales have fallen from our eyes about just how central and crucial love is to our existence and our endurance, especially in times of crisis. And his story is a perfect explanation of what it looks like to have seen Jesus, to have been awakened to Jesus. You are no longer nearly as important as you thought you were. And suddenly, in not having to think about yourself, of all your reasons for humility, and all your obligations to humanity, finally, you can see others as deserving of the attention that they require. That's what it looks like to get him. We're in the middle of this fog, and we need something to guide us in it. And it will be that love. And we need this fog to lift. And maybe soon, but even if it's not, it will be that love that will hold us both in it and lead us the way out of it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.